Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 16. On this show, I've made it my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. Sometimes I talk to people who have wonderful leadership experiences to share. Sometimes I delve into an issue that makes up part of the armour of effective leaders. This show takes on one of the bleaker issues we've discussed. Bullying in the workplace. Something you may have thought a lot about, or very little, depending on the experiences you've had. But for many of us in leadership positions, it's essential that we know how to recognise it and deal with it. It's incumbent on us to have a rich understanding of the impact workplace bullying can have on individuals, teams, and organisations. Today's guest is Maureen Kine. Maureen is an expert in workplace behaviour who has, over the last few years, taken a particular interest in bullying and its effect on the workplace. In the conversation you're about to hear, Maureen takes us through the working definition of bullying, talks about some of the industries in which bullying is most prevalent, she gives us some tips on how to recognise it, and she helps us understand the impact it can have on us as people and on an organisation's bottom line. She also gives us some handy tips on what we, as leaders, can do to deal with it effectively and put measures in place to prevent it from happening again. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Maureen Kine. Maureen Kine, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you for having me, uh, David. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you um, today. Maureen, we're going to sink our teeth into the dark issue of workplace bullying today. But before we do, I'm curious as to how you found yourself working in this space. This is actually really quite interesting. I've been fortunate uh, to have had many career challenges all around Australia, working in health, then in construction and manufacturing, and then into uh, distribution and then health again. And early on in my career in health, one of the things that I noticed was the behaviour of both patients as well as the nurses and the doctors and the surgeons. And it became quite evident even back then, some of the bullying that was actually taking place between surgeons to nurses and so forth, but also sometimes even bullying between patients, which I was really quite mortified about. And I made it my mission back then that wherever I was, that respect would become part of my ethos, my value, my culture, that I wanted to impart in every relationship that I had, whether it be in the work relationship or whether that actually be back in a personal or community relationship. So that set my mindset as I started progressing through all of my life change, career life changes. And then about uh, 12 years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So that was a time for me to wake up and think, wow, you know, I've been working in this corporate world for so long and experienced lots of these uh, bullying behaviours, but knew how to handle it. So I decided I would set up my own business and 
over the last six years, I've been working in the space of bullying in particular. But you know, looking at that workplace behaviour, how do we change people's uh, way that they think, the way that they interact with one another? Because when you look at the statistics, they're, they're all the same. It, it's, they've not reduced in any way, shape or form. So that really worries me as well. A few things that you said there are really interesting to me. One of them doesn't surprise me, and that's when you said that as a nurse, you witnessed some bullying between doctor and nurse. And we'll come later to, to whether the, the lines of bullying parallel the lines of hierarchy in an organization. But I was really surprised to hear you say that bullying goes on between patients. Tell me a little bit more about that. That's actually quite interesting. Um, I did my training originally at uh, Repat in Heidelberg. And so when you started, uh, patients in that, in that situation were ex-army personnel. So you had a hierarchy already there of right. I was a sergeant or I was an, a major. And so that was really quite disconcerting to me. And looking at, well, hey, you know, when you're in a bed side by side and I'm bathing you. You couldn't be more equal, you would think. Absolutely. And that was why I really stripped it back. And I remember having words to a patient in particular and saying, your behavior is totally inappropriate. You cannot treat that person like that way. So, and then, you know, as I progressed and I went into pediatrics, you still would have uh, some sort of bullying behaviors, even between patients still then. So, Let's start from the beginning as we delve into this, as I described earlier, this dark issue of workplace bullying. Give us a definition. What's a definition we can cling to as something that describes bullying to us? The definition varies slightly depending on who's actually uh, telling you uh, what the definition is. But bullying is repeated. It's unreasonable behaviour that's directed towards a group of workers or a worker that actually creates a risk to health and safety. It's behaviour that can actually include intimidation, it offends, it degrades, it humiliates, it, it undermines and it threatens and it is a potential to cause harm. And when I say that is that we talk not only about the psychological harm but we talk about the physical harm. So under the work health safety legislation, bullying is an occupational health and safety hazard. So you mentioned as part of your definition there that it's ongoing. For bullying to be bullying as such, does it need to be something that is, is happening repeatedly? It does under that definition, but there could be a single incident that could be a bullying episode. And those types of episodes tend to happen when somebody's been bullied for a long period of time and there comes the day that they snap and then all of a sudden they're the one who exhibit the bullying behaviour by either physically threatening the person um, who's actually been exhibiting the bullying behaviour or will make a verbal threat. I used to work in education. I was teacher and, and deputy principal for quite a long time. And part of the popular mythology within schools was that bullies are usually someone who had been bullied at some stage. Do you find that to be the case? There is some of that happening. and. We can relate that back to, and this is really quite a hot topic at the present moment, people who are in a domestic violence situation tend to, when they come back into the workplace, 
be the person who's then the perpetrator of the bullying behaviour. Is that right? Oh, that's interesting. It's quite in, it's quite an interesting statistic. So here in Australia, we don't have as many statistics as what's available in the USA or in the United Kingdom. But when you start looking at all of the other statistics around bullying and sexual harassment, all of those statistics, our statistics here in Australia, are in line with those statistics in America and the UK. And you made the point earlier that those statistics have not changed over time. So whatever we're doing, whether it's at schools, in schools, in workplaces, is not working Tell us a little bit about those numbers, what you understand of them, and the lack of effectiveness that programs are having at the moment. It's an interesting one. The statistics are around about, uh, that here in Australia, around about 74% of people are, have been bullied actually in the workplace. And of that, um, 65% have said that they've felt intimidated, threatened and verbally abused either by a colleague or by a manager. And when we start to look at that and break it down even further, is that the 62% of those are men who bully. And their targets are generally 58% of women. And then when we go to women bullies, they target a predominantly 80% of women in the bullying claims. So women are overwhelmingly the victims and men are overwhelmingly the perpetrators. Correct. How well is the issue of bullying or the definition, what constitutes bullying, how well is that understood in the workplace? I think it's understood, but I think, you know, I believe that people are afraid to act on it because people are afraid of losing their jobs People are afraid of retaliation or victimisation because they've actually made a complaint. And often I hear people say, oh, it's just too hard. I just don't want to go there because they won't believe me. Because generally there are those people who bully, it's not always out in the open. It's the indirect type bullying that takes place. So it sounds like you're saying there that the the receiving side of bullying is really well understood. People know when they've been bullied. Do people who are doing the bullying, the bullies, do they always understand that what they're doing is bullying type behaviour? I do- think so. Yes, it, it absolutely. Because you know, you can't have your head. You can't put your head in the sand for too long you know that you're pushing people beyond their limits. You know that you're pushing people you know, to breaking point because of the way that they're reacting. And we, you only have to look at departments and look at the fallout from bullying, you know, the high absenteeism or the high presenteeism or the, um, the turnover in staff that are happening within that organ- in that section, less productivity. So there's a whole raft of different things that are actually happening because that person is actually bullying. And in most cases, when you sit down and have a chat with a bully, a person who's been accused of being a bully, is that they will often say, oh, but that's just me. That's my my way of doing things. It's my way of the highway. As a side note, it's something really interesting you just said. You used the word presenteeism. The last guest I had on this show, who I know you know well, Stacey Copas, used that term and she said, and when I asked her to explain it, she said, you'll hear it everywhere now. And here we are, <laughs> two interviews later, I'm hearing it again. That's, uh, that's very funny. So for the listeners who haven't listened to Stacey Copas, um, episode number 12, 
Stacey described presenteeism as people who are at work, presenteeism as opposed to absenteeism, people who are at work but not engaged. And uh, you just used that term really well. Some a, a quote that you've just made me think of, Maureen, is from Stephen Covey. The, the quote is something along the lines of, we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their behaviours. So that leads me to think that it's no surprise. I, I really do get and accept that people who are being bullied would know that they're being bullied. But I am surprised to hear you say that the bullies always know or often know that they're being a bully because quite possibly their intention is not to out and out be a bully, but to, to achieve an outcome and, and do it in dismal um, means that are completely devoid of any empathy or social skill or, or people skills, but at the same time, not deliberately being a bully. So I, I just want to go back to that and, and talk a little bit more about the point that you made that, that bullies know that they're being bullies. I'm, you know, I, I guess on a, on a very superficial, intuitive level, I'm, I'm trying to come to terms with that. And it's an interesting thing. One, there's been some research around who are bullies. And so re research re reveals that there are two types of bullies, the malicious and the non-malicious. So you've got the secret is to remind ourselves that most people can bully or be bullied. And look, and I, you know, perhaps even in sometimes when I've been under stress or duress is, that, you know, I've snapped and snarled a couple of times. And, you know, that could be seen as being bullying mm. um, in the workplace. So you've got the serial bully who's a psychopath yep. or sociopath or an antisocial personality disorder. So, you know, that's a small percentage. Then you've got people who actually bully instinctively. That's just their way. It's just their way. And 1% of the population are psychopaths. Right. That's scary. One and out of 100 people. <laughs> Out of 100 people. And then 3 to 5% have an antisocial personality disorder. Well, let's delve into that. 1%. So one out of 100, every 100 people I know is a psychopath, statistically. So that means statistically I know quite a few psychopaths. I've come across yes. them in my world. What am I looking for there? Who are the psychopaths in my life? Generally, it's men. It's, very, it's less women in, in this 1%. And it was people who really, are, if we start looking around different types of leadership roles, they're very um, autocratic. Mm -hmm. So it's my way or the highway. Yeah. There's no discussion. You could sort of go and talk to them until you're blue in the face. And so they hold this really autocratic type behaviour. And that can be at various levels of leadership within the organisation. So they are the people who could exhibit rages of behaviour. So they can be going temper tantrums. Uh, you don't know whether you, you're dealing with the yin or the yang mm -hmm. because they're so un unpredictable. So they can be great at one moment and, and awful the next. Correct. So are all autocratic type leaders psychopaths? No. So tell us more. What, what else? What are the other characteristics? Well, so then when you start to look at the autocratic type um, behaviours, we start to look at things like people who lack, um, they could be lacking involvement in the work as well. So autocratic people may not know as much about what's actually going in their organisation. 
So they're trying to have that control over the situation. They could lack, um, they lack trust in people. So people who are autocratic will lack trust in the people that they're dealing with. They're also poor at delegating. So they'll try and control everything, but then get really antsy when things aren't getting done and start blaming other people when the jobs are not getting done. They have poor interpersonal skills. So they have little control and very little flexibility in the way things get done. So that's the autocratic type person. You're describing someone there with low emotional intelligence. Extremely. So what about the 3 to 5% who have social disorders? Well, the social disorders, unfortunately, those social disorders are things that are out of sight of your control, my control, or the workplace's control is that they may be people who, you know, may have had skills where they've their social skills or their life skills have led them to be on this journey. Now, without pretending to be psychologists, because neither of us are, no. what kind of background do these people typically have? Someone who's got a social disorder or is a psychopath, has this come from their childhood or is it genetic? Is it nature or nurture? Who, where, where do these people get these issues? It could be a range of those, absolutely a range of those. And I think that, you know, like if you start thinking about people who went to Vietnam War, you start thinking about some of the behaviours that they've exhibited when they've come back. So, you know, those people are in the workforce. So, you know, they've been psychologically impaired. So we don't know. It's one of those things, as I said, from a psychological point of view, I'm not in that space to be able to clearly define who and what and where they've come from. So what kind of behaviours are we talking about? We've been using the term bullying. Let's break it down and, and talk about what that looks like on a really practical level in the workplace. So in the, in, from a practical perspective, you know, bullies are people who love exercising their power, they're insecure, and there's a fair amount of career competition taking place. So when we start looking at organisations, particularly among high-performing salespeople, if you've got KPIs set that are more around individualism rather than team culture or organisational culture, you're going to have a lot of bullying episodes going on between high-performing salespeople. People who have a history of being a victim. So it's a bully, in actual fact, likes to disempower people. So they've got that control. And generally when they start, when you've got people who disempower, they're generally people who are insecure, have all those insecurities themselves. So even those bullies that we think of who seem to be oozing with confidence and it's their arrogance and their ego that's leading them to, to conduct themselves in this kind of full body press way on the people around them, there can be an element of under the skin, lacking self-esteem with even those people. Correct. And I think the interesting thing is that, you know, some of the workplace investigations that I've undertaken um, over just these you know, last six months is that when you've got people who large in stature but in, very insecure about their own, own person and when they stand or hover over people and stand in people's personal space, you know, other people get threatened by, you know, this big person standing over them and questioning them about, well, do you like me? Why didn't you invite me out on the weekend? Why, why, don't, why won't you be my friend on Facebook? 
and, you know, they keep repeating these behaviours. Another, you know, other situations here that I've come across is that people have just said, but that's me, I'm loud. I've always been loud. And that's what I was talking about when I, when I quoted Stephen Covey before. That loud person is quite possibly not judging themselves as a bully. They're just judging their own behaviour on, as I said, their intentions. My intention is to communicate with this person and, and get my point across, whereas the person on the other end of it is is feeling completely physically and emotionally intimidated by this big, loud person who Correct. might not necessarily have the goal of, of being a bully. And that's that's a really interesting one. And one of the things that when we do our training, we actually talk about it's it's the impact that you have. So you must always think about the impact that you're actually having. Your intentions doesn't matter. So if we were standing in court on a bullying claim, is that the judge is not going to sort of say to you, it doesn't matter what you intended, it's the impact that you've actually had on that person or on those people as to how they now are feeling and how they've been affected by your behaviour. Is it fair to say that there would be detractors from this issue who would argue that how can I know the impact I'm having on someone? I can only really be control in control of my own behaviour. I can only really be true to the intentions that I have. How can I possibly assess the way that my behaviour will be interpreted by someone? I think it's really important for people, you know, the workers in the organisation to have an understanding of their own behavioural style, their own profile. So when we start having, you know, we've we've got people in the workforce who are quite dominant, we've got people who are influencers, we've got people who are steadfast, and we've got people who are conscientious. So they, you know, they work in, in some of the in those four quadrants. So if I'm going to have a discussion with somebody and I've got a very dominant nature, is that I could come over as the bullying type because I'm going to stand over somebody who's more steadfast and say, well, I want now this, this and this and give it in a really uh, succinct, harsh manner. And if you say that quite often enough to that person that this is how you want the the, the work to be done or this is the, the how you want the reports provided to me, and if you do that often enough and people are feeling that they that this person is standing over them and being a bully, is that then the person who is giving those directions does need to have a look at their behaviour. They do need to have a look at how they're communicating. So that's the other thing is that it's the communication. It's a breakdown in communication and it's about the tone that people are using when they're asking for directions or asking for a job to be done. It's that tone of voice. And people will hear that tone of voice before they actually hear the instruction, you know, through their ears. It's a real advertisement for some of those profiling tools that we as consultants like to use, isn't it, Maureen? The the idea of MBTI or the leadership circle or DISC, as you mentioned, or Herman Brain, it doesn't really matter which one it is because the goal of all of those tools is to get people to begin reflecting on themselves and their own behavior. So when you were saying that it's not about your intention, it's about the impact that you're having I guess what you're saying is that it's incumbent on all of us to not just think about what I mean to do, but but the way I'm coming across to the people around me to heighten our own emotional intelligence of the impact that we're having on on those around us. Absolutely. And I'll go back to when we started talking earlier on. It's about the respect. 
So if I respect the person I'm having that communication or that talk with, is it then I'm actually going to get best value out of that person if I'm respecting them? Sometimes I might not like that person. I might not like what they've done. But if I can start the relationship off with respect and work on that, is that we will get less claims for bullying coming through. We'll have less claims. Even sexual harassment is horrendous still uh, within the workplaces. So we will actually build a workplace that's built on respect and bullying you will see subside once we start working on that and that becomes the culture of the organisation is that if we have a culture that has respect and integrity and trust as part of the ethos within the organisation, we will start to eliminate these bullying behaviours. Tell us a little bit about the impact that bullying behaviours can have on an organisation at a individual level, a team level, and at a whole organisation level? Well, if we start looking at those behaviours, if we start looking at the impact uh, that these can have on the organisation, is that we then start to look for the individual. You know, there's a lot of anxiety and uh, other illnesses that can present. We then start to look at there's a lot of lost productivity, uh, less confidence in what they do. There's also a lack of performance. And I think one of the things that we often talk about, you know, we say, we, I was using the word presenteeism, but in training I've often used the discretionary effort. So studies also show that when people are in their workforce, the average uh, percentage of effort that they put into their job is 52%. So Wow, that's incredibly low, isn't it? <laughs> it's a, it's a really quite incredible um, statistic. So when we talk about presenteeism, if a person is being individually impacted by a bullying person, that discretionary effort or that presenteeism is going to go from 52% down to 10 20 30%. Even lower. So we're, on average, we're worth about half a week's work as it is. Correct. And uh, if you add bullying into the mix or anything that raises workplace anxiety or discomfort, that just goes even lower. Absolutely. So it really is in the best interests of any organisation to get a handle on this as an issue. Absolutely. And that was why, you know, if people, if an organisation, one of the three things that we look at is that you, you need to look at your prevention strategies. What have we got in place first? It's better to be um, proactive so look at prevention strategies. The other one is that often we get called in, it's once the, pro- once the problem has sort of, as I said, say, shit's hit the fan, so now what are we going to do? Some organisations, I said, just get your checkbook out because that's just where it is at the present moment. That sounds pretty, pretty awful, but some organisations have let the rot settle for so long is that it's, it's inoperable it gets to that stage. So organisations will then say, look, you know, come in and fix it. Um, And then it's all around that correction, those solutions that you need to put in place. So they're the three things an organisation should look at. Prevention, looking at um, detecting it or looking at identifying it or recognising it and then correcting it. When you go into an organisation that you would describe as the rot has set in, and it's inoperable. What do you do? How how do you work in such an organisation? It's look, it's a difficult one because um, you know some organisations I've been in, and I've sort of said, well, where's the CEO? Um, well, you know, he's really not involved. Well, 
if the CEO is not involved in what we're doing, this won't work. That's number one. So getting the CEO around the table is absolutely imperative now to start saying, well, okay, what's going on? So before you start the training, you really need to find out where are the issues? Where do we lack in negative leadership styles that are driving these behaviours? So you've got to start to really break it down, strip back. It's like peeling an onion, take all the layers right back to get to what is the root cause of what's going in the organisation. It could even be, it could even start right at the point of, well, really, we don't even give anybody really an employment contract. We really don't even give anybody a proper position description. So how can you clarify what the expectations are for employment? How can you performance manage somebody when you don't have the framework in place? Are there any industries or workplace types that are more prone to deep-rooted bullying than others? There are. It, it's, it's in the news um, a fair bit lately. And so we actually have uh, just up on the, uh, in the age last week, there was the Metropolitan Fire Brigade here in Melbourne um, that is gripped with a culture conflict of the present moment. So they've got the unions and management totally misaligned. So that's creating a lot of angst, a lot of bullying, uh, you know, between the unions and as well as between the, the staff uh, within the fire brigade. That's one example. Another one is health in particular. We've got you know reports going out left, right and centre. The AMA were meeting last week to discuss how they were going to rectify some of the bullying behaviours uh, within the uh, medical fraternity around surgeons and doctors. And from a hierarchical perspective, and you talked about that before, is that when we start looking at health, surgeons themselves, their learned behaviours that they learn from the moment they go to med school and start doing their training and then start doing their internship. And so the behaviours that they're learning from the people that are actually teaching them uh, or training them on their new life skills. Very interesting point. You know, I'm probably my strongest personal experience with workplace bullying came during my university job. For four years, I worked at a, uh, at a hotel, a, a very famous name hotel that I won't name today. Uh, and I, I washed dishes for four years. Fabulous job. A whole bunch of my mates worked all at the, we worked at the same place. It was a pretty good time really. But we did notice as uni students, as people who weren't dedicated to the hospitality industry, it was just a job to us. We noticed that in particular, chefs were really prone to bullying. It worked right from the top of this particular hotel where the head chef himself was the biggest bully in the place. And you could stand and watch the other chefs copy him as if that was the way that you had to get about. And and if you weren't engaged in really nasty, aggressive, shouting type behavior in front of the chef as a way to communicate with the people around you, then you weren't part of the team. You weren't part of the way things were done. I was aghast when I went there from a nice little private school that I went to and got my first university job and, and saw the way that this workplace happened. It, it was just amazing to me. And, you know, not long ago, I was at a party with a mate who is a chef and there were lots of other chefs there. And I just casually mentioned this and I was received with great vitriol by the chefs around me defending the practice, mm. telling me that 
That's the only way you can get through to some people by yelling and screaming at them. When you work under the type of pressures we work under, they told me, that you have to get things done that way. They, they, they aligned their work with the pressures of a surgeon. They, and I remember they made that point that only it's only chefs and surgeons that work under this type of pressure. And <laughs> this is the only way we can work with the waiters and the junior chefs around us. Oh, I still, I'm amazed by the whole experience. I don't feel particularly scarred by being around it as a uni student because I was, I, I, I felt like an outsider looking in, but it really has stood out. You know, that was more than 20 years ago, that experience for me, but that experience has stood out. Is is the hospitality known for that or does that just happen to be my one experience? No, the hospitality is known for that. And I suppose you only have to look at Gordon Ramsay as a great yeah, example. Yeah, you're right. And it's on TV and you're going, oh, my God, you know. And it's just wrong, really. My daughter, uh, my youngest daughter, be, decided to become a chef and she worked at one of the best restaurants in Sydney, in Rose Bay. And she lasted there 18 months and she said, uh, Mum, I can't do this any longer. The behaviour was atrocious. And she said, that's not the way that we've been brought up. And so she walked away from it. She just, it destroyed her in that aspect of ever wanting to work in a kitchen ever again. How does it happen? In 2015, I would have thought, I, I think without thinking too much about it, I had assumed that the hospitality industry had changed because I thought there is no way they could still be acting like that. It would be an HR nightmare to have chefs on the books who treated people that way. But I think I'm learning that it actually hasn't changed all that much. And that's the way a lot of kitchens still operate. How does it still take place in 2015? It's because people are afraid to speak up. Like when I looked at my daughter, it, it, I suppose I, the thing that the mistake I made was saying, you know, oh, look, it's a job. You've got an apprenticeship. So as a parent, yeah. um, you're saying you're, stick it out. Stick it out and you're encouraging them. And this is a really, really interesting one too, David, because we start to look at the people who are most vulnerable in workplaces. So we look at people Vulnerable people are new people to an organisation. So those vulnerable people uh, won't speak up uh, when people are exhibiting behaviours because they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to be sound to be, you know, I'm a complainer already in the first couple of weeks that I've joined the organisation. The other one is aged, you know, sort of people reaching the, the end of their working life are vulnerable as well. So people will think, oh, well, they're past it. You know, they, they won't want to learn that new IT technology. They won't be able to do that. So that they will then start to push them out of the organisation. The other one is young people and apprentices. And I, I, my heart still sinks when I think of some of the things that have happened to apprentices. It seems to be this ritual is still going on where apprentices it can be so maltreated in businesses, it just is frightening. And to when I was doing some training for an organisation, I said to the apprentice, we were in a, I had a room of about 25 uh, workers in the room and we we're going through uh, the training. And we started talking about vulnerable workers in the way, you know, that they were prone to bullying behaviours. And this kid turned around and said to me, it's okay. I said, but how did you feel when you the train when you were being bullied and you've gone through this in this workplace? And he said, "But look, it's just part of what you have to do." And I said, "So do you approve of this?" He said, "Well, no." And I said, "So, but you're telling me that it's okay, but you don't, but you still don't approve of it." He said, "Well, you just have to toughen up." Mm. And I said, 
oh, look, I, I said, I'm sorry, this this can't happen. And I think if we go back to cases, there was a young boy that committed suicide in Sydney a couple of years ago because of the bullying behaviour where he was physically um, scarred. He was black and blue from the behaviour of his superiors. There was another apprentice that was shot in the eye with a nail gun in Perth. So they those two cases probably repeated around the country all too many times, are at the extreme end of the spectrum when we're talking about the consequences of bullying in the workplace. What are some of the other maybe less obvious consequences? Less obvious? Look, people just withdraw, but a lot of times people will stick it out for a period of time and then they'll leave because they don't want to confront the issue. So we lose a lot of good talent from organisations because they talk with their feet. Some of the other things that we do tend to see, I suppose from a business perspective, if we start looking at an organisation that's got you know, bullying behaviours, sexual harassment type behaviours happening, is that the productivity of the organisation is way down because when we start talking about the discretionary effort that people are putting in, well, they're not producing. So you know, the, the, product, the net profit of the organisation is is really low, turnover is high, morale is terrible among all those that are left behind because they uh, feel like that you know they're losing their mates one after another, somebody else comes in. So we train that person up to be the same as perhaps they might take on even that bullying behaviour. They could actually have a lot of work cover claims. So that's another another part of the process. So people who are being bullied, when I said to you before about occupational health and safety, is that they're less focused on their work. So they're more inclined to have accidents actually happening. And I think if I can use this statistic when we're talking about um, health, in America, they actually uh, analyse every patient death right down to what the root cause of it, of it is. So 400,000 patient deaths not last year, the year before in America, 80% of that was in relation to bullying. That's an awful statistic, isn't it? I know, it's just frightening. Does bullying within the workplace usually parallel the lines of hierarchy? It's generally uh, it comes sort of from the top because people tend to hire like, like self, but you know, what actually happens is people who it's in the leadership roles, it actually happens. It's generally not co-worker on co-worker. It's generally right. sort of subordinate, you know, the um, leadership coming down. But the other fault that's actually happening is that uh, somebody who could be a great worker, you know, making heaps of widgets, really great person, and it's said, oh, well, he could be a good team leader. So they promote people up without any formal qualifications, without any additional training on how to be a leader, on how to be a supervisor, or they might send them off on, you know, a bit of tick boxing training. And once just tick a box here and tick a box there, that's fine. They'll be all right in the role. So they step into those roles and they start to model the behaviour of the person who's been the perpetrator or the bully above them. And, and then it becomes self-perpetuating through an organisation. And you Correct. mentioned that young apprentice before who was excusing it and explaining it and saying, look, it's okay, I just have to toughen up. You can see really easily how it just generates, regenerates through the organization. When that young lad grows up and is a is a full tro- full-blown tradie and has his own apprentices, he only really knows one way to treat them. And then Correct. the cycle starts all over again. 
But you you were mentioning that it's often a, a leader bullying a subordinate. It makes it very difficult. Where does it leave you to turn if it's your boss who's do, doing the bullying? Well, I think the thing is that, you know, the reality is it would be great to handle uh, the situation internally, you know, if you could. But there are external agencies that people can go to to make a complaint. So people can go to Fair Work, they can go to the EEO Commission, they can go to WorkSafe and make those complaints. A colleague of mine, she used to do a lot of investigations for work, WorkSafe and it was quite amazing um, some of the complaints that she had to deal with. And their statistics, I think it was around about 25, they would get about 25 claims per week come through and of that, there was three that were quite serious that an investigator had to be appointed to straight away to handle this, you know, handle this um, the complaint that had been made. What stops people from going to those kind of bodies to make the complaint? Fear of losing your job, a fear of reprisal. So if you start thinking about regional areas, in particular, you know, where jobs are hard to come by, is that people are, are, are terribly afraid of making a complaint or, you know, even speaking out about it. So someone who feels bullied, but they also feel those other things that you've just talked about, I cannot lose my job, I might not be able to find another one. The person who's doing the bullying is my boss, could even be the owner of the business. There might just be the two of us here working in this workplace. All these things are stacked up against me, but I need to retain this employment. What, mm. what are the steps that I take? What can I do in that situation? Well, I think the interesting thing is that when we do start to talking to organisations and we've run heaps of public workshops, particularly targeted at these small businesses, is that we start to talk to the business owner or even to the employees about, well, if you have some practical steps, what are some of the things that we need to do? So it's about finding the moment that you can talk to your boss and say, hey, look, Fred, really this behaviour is not appropriate. I'm feeling uncomfortable about it. Can we look at some solutions around how we need to uh, resolve the issues that are going on? And often, you know, when we talk about business owners bullying, they're under, they're stressed, mm. absolutely stressed. Yeah. So from an employee's perspective, what can the employee do to relieve some of that stress? What can they commit to to help run that, you know, work within that organisation that's actually going to help that organisation and it meet its, its goals and its needs and its deadlines. What about from the other end of the scale? Let's say I'm in a large organisation, I'm, pa I'm part of the hierarchy, I'm a leader who might have a number of direct reports and who in turn have their own direct reports. So I'm at GM level, say. And I know that some of the people who work for me engage in behaviour that, that I don't like. I view as bullying type behaviour. What kind of things can I put in place in my organisation to help work with that? That's a really interesting one. And when we start to sort of get into the organisations that have structure is that we start thinking, well, what's the policy around workplace behaviour? What's the policy around uh, bullying? Do we have a code of conduct? So we need to make sure that we've got clarification about what the expected behaviours are for the organisation as a point one. So we need to have that. So it's about then how do we impart that message to the whole of the team and to the organisation. So it's sitting down, you know, and talking about what are the expected cultures of the organisation, what's the ethos of the organisation, so that people then start to embrace it. And 
then if they don't have a culture statement, if they don't have a mission and visions for the organisation, if we have those clearly defined for the organisation, people will be more engaged about wanting to work for that organisation because it has clear strategy, it has clear direction about how it's going to treat their people moving forward. So that's that's one part of it, is that being able to also have an open door policy so that as a manager, you say to your employees, whatever the problem is, please come and talk to me about it. So it's about welcoming those concerns. And a lot of organisations shy away from that. I don't want to hear any nonsense. I don't want to hear any crap that's going on. But if the door is open and we have that open door policy and say, hey, look, I really want to have that chat with you. Let's set aside some time and talk through what the issue is. How can you demonstrate that as a leader that when you say you've got an open door policy, you you really and truly mean that? It's a bit of a catchphrase. It's even used satirically sometimes. What can a leader do to demonstrate that they're for real? Well, I think the thing is it goes back to having uh, that conversation with your team. It's about how you have that discussion with your team. You're setting up a framework so that you do um, have an hour's discussion or two-hour discussion saying, I'm here, I'm prepared to welcome concerns because it's about creating a safe environment. You're talking about creating a safe environment both physically and mentally for you as my team. So when you do that is that and you communicate that is that you will have uh, a better buy-in to that whole process and demonstrate so that if somebody does come to you and say, look, I've got an issue and you know you're under the pump, you've got a heap of stuff happening on, you could just say, Mary, look, I've just got to finish this report. Can you give me half an hour and then we'll chat? So if you're giving them some clear boundaries about, well, hey, look, I've got something that I must finish or you say to them, is it really urgent? Do we need? Do I need to stop now? And so that if the people then have an understanding that you're in the way that you're communicating to them, you're the way that you're responding to them, is that they're then going to feel confident in you. They're going to trust you that you're going to say what you do. And you can imagine that just those things that you talked about then could have the effect of being a true circuit breaker in a difficult organisation. Correct. So you've told us that as a leader, the first thing I should do is is clarify expectations, develop that culture statement. Then I, ha- I should have this authentic open door policy and make it clear that I want to hear the concerns of the people I work with. What else do I need to be doing as a leader? Then I think it's a matter of, you know, we talk about performance management and there's performance management, there's performance management. But I believe, and I'm a true believer, that if you take 10 minutes to sit down with each employee, 10 minutes each month uh, or 10 minutes every second week, just to talk through how they're going, what they're doing, are they achieving the goals that they need to achieve? And so that you're having a true one-on-one discussion with that person, you will get 100% commitment from your employees that you care about them. How deep through the organisation should I be doing that? If I'm a GM and and there are two or three or four layers that sit beneath me on the org chart, how how deeply should I be going? Should I be speaking that regularly with the direct reports of my direct reports? No. I then what you're doing, the one of the key things is about empowerment. So you want your direct reports below you to be as good as you. So it's about empowering them, teaching them how to have that open door policy and how to follow through with those processes and have their discussion with their subordinates. So all of a sudden 
they're empowered as a leader because you're giving them new skills, you're showing them how it's how it will be done so that they then have that discussion with their next layer. So overall, it becomes the ethos of the organisation that everybody is caring about each individual that falls underneath them. And even if one person's only got one person that they need to be, uh, that they're in charge of as a subordinate, is having those discussions and making sure that they do have those discussions, even though, hey, look, I, I work with that person every day. But it's like, I think, when we have a, an adult and a child relationship is that you sit down with your child and you talk about their progress and what they're doing. So even every time, every night at the dinner table, TVs go off and we sit down and say, what was your day like? How did you go? What did you achieve? What was the most fun thing about today? So that you're actually having an interaction, a personal interaction with that person one-on-one. It's such a tough issue and I can see why there are so many difficulties moving the statistics on, on making this better in the workplace because I could have the best of intentions as a general manager in of this department, but if the person you report to directly is the person that you're concerned about, then you're not going to go and talk to them. No. I can I can gear them up and I can encourage my direct reports as much as I like to have an open door policy, but if they're the problem, if they're the ones that are are making people feel bullied, then no one's going to come and talk to them about it. So it's such a difficult issue. And and I know that you're talking about, and you talked earlier about the CEO has got to be on board and there's got to be some really clear cultural expectations within the organization. And we, we can only do so much as people who are part of big teams. I can see, as I say, how it's really hard to move the numbers on this. It, it is. But I think the thing is that my belief is that the statistics show that where you embrace this as the culture of the organisation, if there is a person who is the misfit as a team leader or as a supervisor who exhibits these bullying behaviours, they will then shift that person out or modify his behaviours or train that person to say, your behaviour is not acceptable. Let's start looking at what we need to do to make a shift in the way that you communicate in your in your role. Tell us about someone. I bet you've worked with someone who's been completely shocked when they're confronted with their own behaviour about the kind of impact they're having on others. <laughs> they're quite embarrassing. I worked, when I said I worked in construction, I actually managed James Hardy Building Products and Systems in Canberra for seven years. So there were a couple of different bosses that um, I did have, but one in particular did try to exert his uh, power over me and it was quite interesting and I really stepped back and said, no way, I'm not going to be treated like that. And I remember an episode when um, I did go up to um, Sydney and his behaviour was absolutely atrocious and I do remember sort of coming up to him toe-to-toe and just saying, to him, I won't use the words that I did use. They were construction uh, type <laughs> words, were they? <laughs> they were construction type words that particular day. And just said to him that he was not to treat me in that way in any way, shape or form. That, you know, if I was a bloke, I probably would have you know, snotted him by now. So it was quite interesting. It was, it was, I had to step up and say, I'm in control and you can't treat me like that. And um, he was surprised? He was quite surprised and he was quite taken back that I had pushed back and it was quite interesting. The fact that I had pushed back 
was that there was an awful lot of respect that then came out of that because he knew that I was not going to tolerate that behaviour. There was another episode where I went on to a civil and civic site just after I started with James Hardy and I was the only female in the industry in Canberra and I walked on site and I had to inspect uh, some um, columns that were being installed and the site manager just absolutely flipped his lid at a female walking on his site and going to inspect the work and just the language that was coming out of his mouth was just incredible. So I remember putting my hand up and saying, stop, enough's enough. First off, you know, I've been hired by James Hardy because I'm capable and you'll stop the language. And it was interesting when we finished that project, and that was my first project with James Hardy with uh, being on site. When we finished that project, I got a special invite by the project director to come to the opening of the building. And in, every time I went into the civil and civic organisation in uh, Canberra to talk with other project directors about the jobs that they might have been working on, is that he would put his head in the door and he would say, be good to her, be good to her, be good to her. You'd won his respect. I'd won his respect because I actually, it's, it's about having that courage to step up and say enough's enough. And it's counterintuitive, isn't it? But we know from the DISC model that you talked about earlier that the way to communicate effectively with someone who falls into that dominant quadrant is to actually communicate really strongly, that people within that dominant quadrant uh, respect someone who's willing to stand up for themselves and interrupt them and tell them the way it is. That in fact, if you were to, to slink back and play the role of victim to those in that dominant quadrant, they'll just continue to, to walk all over you even more, a, a bit like a, a shark who's drawn blood. Whereas Absolutely. if you go the other way and stand up to them and, and show your strength, they'll actually respect that and, and you'll be one of them. You're, you're on the team then. Is, is, that a, is that a fair summary of that, that quadrant? I definitely believe so. I definitely believe so. But the interesting thing I think, you know, what we talk about is when we talk about those people on the quadrant is that then you actually then have the other people on the other side of the quadrant who are, you know, are more about attention to detail and things like that. But they also need to be able to understand what their style is so in the way that they like to be communicated to so that they then can come back to you know, the people who are in the dominant so and say look hey look I need some space to absorb what you're telling me can I you know come back to you in half an hour or can we you know have a debrief now and then I'll absorb the information that you've given me and then I'll come back to you with a solution so we need to understand all of these various ways that we like to be communicated to and if the team are cohesive and understand the way that we want to be communicated to and we approach it in that manner, imagine what the culture of the organisation would look like. That's right. And it comes back to what we were discussing earlier, just the value of understanding that the type of communicator you are, the type of communicator your teammates are and, and how that all works together and how we can make allowances for each other and, and keep each other in mind as we're trying to share messages. Because as you talked about, someone who is, who is a detailed thinker and perhaps an introvert, they could so easily be, be stomped all over by the dominant figure who wants to make a decision right now Correct. and we need, we, need to, we need to decide right now. Whereas that introverted thinker who's maybe focused on the data will we'll have to step out of their comfort zone and stay to that, say to that dominant communicator, I know you want a decision right now, but for us to reach the best decision, we're going to need a little bit of time to go over these numbers. I'm going to need a little bit of thinking time. 
then I'll come back to you. That's going to be the best decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the more open we can have those discussions, the better, as a, the, better the environment for everybody will be. Tell us, Maureen, about some of the success stories you've had with individuals or teams working with bullying and, and helping situations become more harmonious and enjoyable and healthy at the work. It's been interesting. There's a couple of clients that you know, sort of come to my workshops on a regular basis because they like being there so much and they learn so much about how they can embrace the changes back in their workplace. So one of them, you know, I've actually gone in and done some internal training with them and the staff are really keen, uh, you know, to be in the classroom and learning more about how they can interact back in their workplace with their employees. When I did some training for a large organisation, a manufacturing organisation, when we finished the training and I got the um, scorecard at the end of the day, we had a 90, 96% success rate. People were truly engaged in what we had been talking about and virtually sort of said, we've never had training like this in the past before. So they were totally committed to it. And the changes have been quite amazing about some of the things that they've actually put in place since we've had that training. Another organisation is that the team leaders, um, we've gone back and done regular training with them because they have always gone away with new skills, new tech, new new ways of doing things that have actually helped their team and helped the their support help help them manage their supporters in a much more effective way. What what are those new things? Well, it's just in the way that they communicate. It's just in the way that they uh, have those discussions with people because often it's all about. Sometimes people are afraid to go up and have a discussion with somebody and say, hey, look, your behaviour is inappropriate. It is bullying. So they have the confidence to know what the behaviour is. They have the confidence now to be able to go up and have that discussion, that difficult discussion with that person and pull them aside and give them a, a warning if need be, give them a written warning if need be, or you know, talk about their behaviours and get them that person to have an understanding of what their behaviour or the impact that that behaviour is having on the rest of the team as well. So it really helps get them have more clarity and understanding about them as being a senior in their role, in their organisation. And I think one of the other ones that we talk about is that we have sometimes a lot of role confusion. So people who are team leaders and supervisors going into these roles from a new perspective or regionally, it's a huge impact, is that when we go into the organisation, we sell ourselves. And so we're always giving the 100% of the time. So when things are getting really bad, we're trying to be the nice person in the organisation rather than retreating back to the role of being the supervisor and being able to have clarity around your role as a supervisor and going up to that person and saying, in my role as the supervisor, we need to have a discussion around your behaviour and getting some transparency transparency around how we're going to have that communication. Just making that dynamic really clear. I'm your boss right now and, and I'm going to have a boss conversation with you. Correct. And regionally, this is a really big issue because outside of the workplace, you have, you know, they could be related, you know, family relationships, yeah. playing with them on the football field, playing with them on tennis, you know, a lot of a lot of other interactions taking place external yeah. of the workplace as well. 
in the mining industry, they could be living with them in camp and eat, have to eat dinner with them every night. Correct. Correct. Now, Maureen, it's been such an interesting conversation, but I'm going to wrap it up by asking you the same four questions I ask all of my guests at the end of their conversation. Now, I know you've heard these, so you potentially have prepared your answers. <laughs> have you prepared your answers, Maureen? Oh, I've sort of been thinking. <laughs> all right. Well, let's hit, I'm going to hit you with them. First of all, question number one, tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to, a big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? Um, I like my intimate dinner with my closest friends. All right. Now, Maureen, are you more likely to be caught daydreaming or bogged down in the detail? Um, that's a difficult one. So it really depends sometimes as to which environment I'm in. Um, What's most likely? I probably would say that I tend to perhaps get bogged down sometimes with the information that's actually happening in front of me. Good answer. Oh, and, and there was a little bit of a hint to the answer to that, to that question in the chat we had earlier today, Maureen, off air. Second last question, the penultimate question. Maureen, are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? Okay. I could answer that two ways. Because I've run my own business... I need to be perhaps a little bit more decisive about some of the decisions and the, the flow of where my business is actually going. But there is that other highly um, influential side of me that wants to be conceptual and run around and look out and chase after the shiny balls um, out there. So I've had to learn to pull back on that and come back and be focused about where I need to be, what my direction is, and what I'm trying to achieve. And very last question, you're going on a road trip. Do you plan the route, book the hotels in advance and know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? Um, now that I'm a bit older, <laughs> I would tend to try and have some sort of um, destinations planned because I really would like to sort of stay in nice places as I go. But I do like the freelancing side of it as well. Fantastic. Maureen Kine, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very, very much for this, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure um, having this discussion with you. There you have Maureen Kine, knowledgeable and passionate about workplace behaviour. There was a lot in that chat to ponder, but I guess for me, the fact that like so many other issues for leaders, our ability to manage bullying comes down to the quality of the relationships we have with those around us and our ability to communicate openly and authentically. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from the podcast. I'll also paste a helpful link to Safe Work Australia's Guide to Dealing with Workplace Bullying. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.